0: This is from Galatians 5, to 24. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you have been following with us in this series in Galatians, we are nearing the end, and we're also nearing the end of, well, we're at the end of this section on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we have spent the last two weeks looking at different aspects of this fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. And I hope you remember the big takeaway from this fruit is that This fruit is not understood until you realize that first God exemplifies this through Jesus Christ, that he actually exhibits fruit through his son. And then secondly is that this fruit is supernatural. It's not something that can be obtained by your efforts or by attending a class or reading a book. They're not personality traits. They're spirit produced and without the Holy Spirit, you will not have this fruit. And I think you will see, especially this week, how true this is when you look at these last two aspects of the fruit of the spirit, gentleness and self-control. And then we'll see the one who makes all things possible. Gentleness. Gentleness is not a personality trait. It's very tempting to think that it is because when we think of a gentle person, We think of a mild-mannered one. We think of someone soft-spoken, someone who's perhaps introverted. It's very easy to think of gentleness as a personality, um, not someone who's charismatic and vibrant and effervescent and someone who speaks loud. We think of that person not as gentle but as rough, but it is possible for a loud person to be gentle. How? Because that person is not just humble. Actually, more importantly, they're humbled. They've been humbled. This person is aware of her depth, of her own sinfulness, aware of their need for Christ. And that awareness launches them into gentleness, despite an outgoing, effervescent personality. Some of you know that I grew up in New Jersey, and you know I practiced hard to actually get rid of my New Jersey accent when preaching, because, and I think I've shared this before, because one, my kids pointed it out all the time, and then a lot of other people would say, they didn't remember anything I said in the message, only, hey, you said ball the other day, <laughs> you know? And I was, those are the people I was surrounded by all my life, New Yorkers, people from the East Coast. And if you ever speak to someone truly from New York, you know they, they're very loud. They have that New York accent you know, and the daughter and then talking, going to the mall. And, and as they're doing that, they're just so loud. And we tend to think that, wow, that person is definitely not a gentle person. On the flip side of that is we think the mild-mannered person is very gentle. And that's not what the fruit of the Spirit is talking about here. That's not what Paul is describing as a spirit produced gentleness. That is to say, that someone can be mild mannered, but self centered and harsh in their heart. And someone can appear gentle outwardly, but inwardly be scheming and rude and stewing. Such a person of quiet nature can also be negative cynical. I had a pastor friend. He, was, he came to his church. He was thriving. The church was growing dramatically. And on his church board, they didn't have an eldership. They had a board of like a council. And there was one particular person who was his greatest antagonist. And he was quiet, unassuming, meek sounding, gentle sounding. But he was also behind-the-scenes stoking skepticism, promoting gossip, um, undermining every single thing he said, every move he made. Not only was my friend eventually forced to leave because of irreconcilable differences with that person, but the whole church split in half. Um, This person remained in control of the smaller group of people, and he controlled that counsel with a very soft tone, a mannered appro- mild mannered approach. So the point of it is this: I hope you understand: do not mistake personality gentleness with biblical spirit produced spirit fruit gentleness. We need to look at what the Bible says about gentleness. There was one person who whom the Bible describes, well, two major people as gentle, or another word that the Bible used to describe the word gentle is meek. And this person who was thought of as meek was Moses. And we see this in Numbers 12.3. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. This verse is in a context. The context is that Miriam and Aaron... His siblings, they were complaining that they weren't, why was Moses in charge? Why couldn't we be in charge? And God judged Miriam by giving her leprosy. She was as white as snow. And so God was saying, Moses is the meekest man on earth. Now, does meek mean weak? Certainly not. In fact, it was Moses' meekness that led him to intercede on behalf of his brother and sister in Israel and to say, please, O Lord, please show your mercy. That is not weakness. That is meekness, gentleness. That's also powerful. There's an, an, a sense of awe that's behind that. It's certainly not cowering fear. So we must not mistake meekness and gentleness with weakness. The same word is used in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus uses it this way. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle or meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So here we see that Jesus is saying that I'm also gentle and Again, this verse is so often misunderstood and outside of context because if you only see this, we say and this is where such a, a wrong perception a perception of who Jesus is comes into play. So often we think, well, the God of the Old Testament is this wrathful, angry God. And Jesus, he's meek and lowly. He's the the one who plays with children and you know was has these little lambs around him and everything is all quiet and tender around him. Do not mistake that word gentle as though it is weakness or some sort of softness. Jesus who is gentle has the authority to destroy the power of the devil and sin. That's who this gentle Jesus is. Gentleness is not weakness because, He had said if he decided he could call down legions of angels to destroy the Roman empire and not go to the cross. But if he did that, not a single one of us would be here in this room and we'd be covered by our own sin. We would be enslaved to sin and doomed to hell. Eternally gentleness exemplifies Jesus' willful submission, submission in power that there is a power about submitting yourself, even in the midst of trying circumstances. And that reveals authority and strength. The greatest example of great gentleness is Jesus himself. But we know, and if you read the gospels, you know he's not always someone who just seems weak. I mean, he took a bunch of cords, wrapped them all together, and started going in, out of the, to the money changer tables, and he started whipping all the people and throwing all the money. If you watch that scene, if we were here, I don't think the word gentle would come to your brain. You, would, you might say, wow, he's so harsh. Couldn't he have just had a conversation and talked to them? Why do you have to start throwing the money around and, and starting actually whipping people? He would have been arrested for abuse. And think about Jesus doing that in today's day and age. He would be on social media all over the place with people trying to cancel him everywhere. Jesus, the gentle one, also calmed the raging seas. He had that type of power. The gentle one, he drove out demons who cowered in fear over him. So do not mistake gentleness for being mild-mannered, never raising your voice, always being calm. The same powerful authoritative Jesus is the one who is gentle. And it's actually that reality that allows us to come into his presence. That's why he is welcoming. See, it takes strength to actually overcome all obstacles so that someone can come into his life without any fear because that person knows they're protected. I've been reading in Micah and I was reading this morning in Micah chapter four. And there we see that through Micah, God says, I'm going to bring the lame to myself. Those who are weak, those who literally can't lift themselves up. And truly, if you examine your heart, every single person of faith in Christ, has at one point in their life seen themselves as utterly lame. Meaning, think of yourself um, having a broken leg, compound fracture, and you tripped and you fell into this deep, dark well, and there is no way you can get out. It's just impossible. You're waiting, you're calling out, you're crying out, no one is coming until you hear someone come throw down a rope in fact he didn't just throw it down he climbed down himself he picked you up he pulled you out of the pit and he said here you are wrapped up your band just took care of you healed you rescued you every single believer of Christ has at some fashion in their life experienced that because that's the people that God calls to himself is the spiritually lame and there is no way that he does that simply if he was mild-mannered, gentle, in the way that we think of gentleness, and didn't care. No, he gets himself dirty. He comes in and, and went to the cross. He did all this in gentleness. So know that it is Christ's gentleness in power that enables us as we falter, and stumble and bumble and fail so miserably, only then can this gentle Christ be the one who rescues us because we actually need rescue. That we are dirty and messy and can't obey him by our own efforts and have to turn to someone who is compassionate and kind and gentle. Dane Ortlund wrote a book um, called Meek and Lowly, and it's actually a really great book. It's it's one that uh, we'll probably reference more and more in the coming weeks. He writes this, Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time, face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. I mean, that's not what Jesus is like. That's not gentleness, you see? It, the gentleness that Jesus is talking about and that Dane Ortlund is discussing and commenting on is the one who, because of his strength and power to overcome sin, he is able to extend his hand to the weak and to the weary and to the miserable failure who's struggling with sin and can't get out of the pit and the dirtiness of it. And so it's then that Jesus is gentle and he brings us into his embrace. I remember when our kids were young and trying to learn how to tie their own shoes. And and I think all of you who have young children, you know, when they first learn it, takes a while. It takes so long. And no matter how neat and nice the shoe next to them is tied, they're going to be unable to do it. And it's going to take a while. They're going to fumble their way through it. Now, imagine if I went to this child and I said, how many times have I told you how to tie that shoelace and you fail miserably? You're no longer my son. You're no longer my daughter. You would think that's a pretty miserable person, parent, now, if you and I wouldn't do that to our own children, do you think God would do that to his children, to me and you? Praise God that he doesn't shriek back from us. Do you know that the Lord knew you were going to sin these sins, no matter how dark, no matter how secret? In that moment where you are doing the, the, the dastardly thing, the thing that you want no one else to know, that you're ashamed of, Jesus knew exactly that you were going to do that. And you might say to yourself, I'm so dirty. He can't forgive me of this. And I've sinned this way too many times. There's no way he's gonna be forgiving. It is his gentleness that actually says, I'm still there. And the reason he's able to be still there is because he's powerful. Because he's powerful, As C.S. Lewis noted in Chronicles of Narnia, he is safe. Because he is good and powerful, he is safe for the believer of Christ. And you're his child. Praise God for that type of gentleness. Because he is gentle, he comes to us, as Paul writes about, while we were still sinners. It is his gentleness, his compassion, that actually we are still welcome in his family. So how does this work in our relationships, in friendships, in marriage, in parenting, in workplaces, in dealing with inspectors? How does this all work? It has to empower our gentleness. See, we have to realize that we are broken and we've been welcomed. And so we should never be surprised when the people around us, too, are broken. Our failures. They disappoint us. They don't actually do what we hope they would do. They're not exactly the way uh, we had dreamt that our friendship would be, our marriage would be, our parenting would be. And so because our God, despite our wretchedness, still welcomes us in, then we don't easily give up on others either. We don't cut and run who don't say, you know what? You failed me for the last time. It's over. There's never an it's over for the person who worships a gentle Christ. Dane Ortlund says this, when the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the fallenness of the world closing in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, they're right there. We have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, with us, solidarity. This is our God. You can't imagine how freeing it is then to know that you are loved this way. So it is the power and authority of Jesus that enables him to be kind and gentle. The two are not contradictory. They are absolutely complementary. And so when this is true, when we know that we've been freed, it took power to free us then I'm no longer bound to try to uphold my same type, that power that comes from within. Whenever we're trying to hold to some sort of scheme of internal power, whether it's individually or even from a societal perspective, it drives us away from Christ. And notice there is no gentleness at all, no kindness, no compassion, no mercy, no forgiveness. Because that person and that society and that culture and that world doesn't understand grace. But the more we understand this power, the more we experience it and believe it to be true, the more we understand it every day, the more we are able to extend it to those around us. It's then that we press in on friendships when they disappoint us when people don't do exactly what we hope when our expectations aren't met and it's so easy to decide i think i need to distance myself i need to cut myself off praise god that our great friend did not distance himself and cut us off in fact when it's most messy most dirty it's not the slug that you touch and eke away from that's when he comes in and embraces. He comes to rescue. He says, I'm gonna be deeper into your life. I'm going to involve myself more into your life. That's the cross. It was while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Same with marriage. If you're in real, the, the, just the, the difficulties of life together, and if you are a, a sinner and your spouse is a sinner, it's hard, but Because my Savior reconciled himself to me at his cost, therefore I understand and therefore I want to show compassion. I want to show mercy. And I become gentle of heart. Not Again, not personality gentle, but gentle of heart. We shepherd our children that way. It's oftentimes parents without appreciation. And it's very tempting to want to... Call out to them and say, Do you even appreciate me? Do you even re- understand what I'm going through? Sacrifices for you? Do you understand that? But how often do we understand the sacrifice of the cross? Really? How often do we look at Christ and see that, wow, that cost was great for me to come into his presence? You will often be underappreciated, parents but you're not bound to that because you know, a gentle savior holds you close. He's the one you know is always there. He sticks by you. There is a friend as that Proverbs eighteen twenty four says, who is closer than a brother and he's always gentle, always kind, always steadfast in his love. Next is self-control. If there is another aspect of the fruit of the spirit that I think it's so tempting to think of as a personality trait. It's self-control. We think that you can go to anger management classes and suddenly have self-control over anger. Or if you want to watch your weight, you go to Jenny Craig. and That's how you gain self-control. That it's something that you go to some sort of Um, self-help seminar or conference or read a good book or have some sort of 10-step methodology and gain self-control and control your life finances just go to Dave Ramsey and everything will be okay you know so it's it's this idea that we think self-control is gained externally but if you remember the desires of the flesh in Galatians 5 19 through 21 you come to realize these are really hard to control by my own power or by going to Jenny Craig or going to Dave Ramsey or going to um, any type of support group, support network, conference, self-help seminar. It just doesn't seem possible. Not to do all of these and not to do them well. Now, this word is used only a few times in the New Testament. Two of those uses are really helpful for us in understanding what it means by self-control. The first is 1 Corinthians 7, 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So here Paul is speaking to a single person or a young widow who's also single, obviously. And his point is that some cannot control their sexual urges. And so therefore, it is better to marry. So in this instance, self-control is sort of how I think many of us might think about self-control regarding sexuality. But the second text shows us that self-control isn't just about sex. It's also about any type of temptation. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And interestingly enough, Paul here is speaking about the Olympics because the Olympic games were even the games, not the Olympics per se, but definitely they had in Paul's day games where they would, instead of a gold medal, they get a wreath that stated that they were the victor. And I think many of us are watching the Olympics now and you realize it takes a lot of training to actually win a gold medal in the Olympics. It's virtually impossible. Think about all the workouts, all the training, and takes a lot of mental training as well but you know what it also takes it takes the ability to say to train yourself to say no no to eating mcdonald's unless you're michael phelps <laughs> you know no to sometimes get togethers with friends so all your friends are getting together and they're going out and doing fun things and this person has to go to the gym to do their tumbling because they're trying to be a gym- gymnast and win the gold medal or they're trying to do um, archery and they're going to the, you know, to hit the target or whatever it might be, there's this sense that you have to actually say no. And that is just as hard, perhaps, as the physical aspect of training. Now, I want you to go back to the list in chapter five, Galatians chapter five, verses 19 through 21. Listen to what the works of the flesh are. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity sensuality idolatry sorcery enmity strife jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these that's a really big list and it covers the gamut of all sorts of sins the Holy Spirit is the one the only one who is able to give you the power to say no to these desires, truly. And I tell you that saying no to these regularly without the Holy Spirit is more difficult than if you were to try to go and compete in one of the Olympics events and try to win gold, as you are, it's, you, you'd say, that's just not possible. Well, it is more impossible for you without the Spirit of God to be able to withstand each one of these all the time. It's not possible, it's impossible. But that's where we look to verse 24 as our ultimate answer, where Paul brings this in to say, it is possible in Christ. Look at verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is to say, when Jesus Christ gave his life was crucified on that cross, he not only over, overcame sin and death, he overcame it in our place so that we too can overcome sin and death forever and ever. And so much of the Bible backs this up. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He is the one, he became uh, flesh and blood, he partook of the same things, and he died so that we can be freed from it. Hebrews 2.18, for he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now that verse, verse 18, is startling. And again, mentioned this before, but the person who succumbs and submits to sin, that person has a much easier job than not submitting to sin. And anyone who has tried to resist temptation, you know it is a lot easier to sin than to resist the sin. And so Jesus, because you might say, well, Jesus was, he was sinless. Of course, it it was easy for him. Quite the opposite. Because he didn't sin, but he was tempted, as Paul says, as the Hebrews writer says, in every way, he is able to help us because he resisted it. And it was difficult, it was painful, it required so much. Now, here's why it was so hard for Jesus. See, he resisted temptation every day, all the time. And there was never a moment where he was freed from that temptation. The person, for example, who is addicted to alcohol and they're tempted to get drunk, imagine how do they try to resist that temptation? They remove themselves from that temptation. They don't have alcohol around them, they stay away from bars and different contexts where there's alcohol. And so, any person who has some sort of sinful urge, the way to try to resist it is to remove yourself from that context. What did Jesus do? He actually never removed himself from any context. He was always in the context of temptation. Always. Every sin, it was there was never a point where he decided, I can't face this. This is just way too hard for me. I'm gonna move myself out because it's so tempting for me. Even... When he was in the desert, it's not as though he said, I'm running out of the desert. This is Satan, you're tempting me way too much. And I'm so hungry. I want to eat that. I want to eat that bread. I want to change that rock to bread. I'm I gotta get out of here. I gotta get away from you. That wasn't how he did it. He answered with his God's word. But he never ran away from it. He was always in the midst of it. May we always understand that Joseph could flee from Potiphar's wife. The the person who is addicted to some sort of sexual morality can have accountability software or accountability groups. Uh, The person who is an alcoholic can avoid certain contexts where there's alcohol. But Jesus, he went in to the places of sin. And he was able to resist that temptation and every desire of the flesh. Why? So that he would be able to help us so that he can actually show us and give us the strength by his spirit to even say no to such things. To make sure that we always know we are not alone. And I think sometimes for us as Christians, we think there's no, I I can't break free. I've been in this cycle of sin for so long. But it's probably because we've oftentimes tried to resist it by our own willpower, by our own strength, instead of saying, I, I can't do it. I just literally can't. And there's, re- there's reasons why the place that healing begins first is often the place where you begin to admit, I am a sinner. I am in desperate need. And without Christ I'm utterly hopeless, I'm lost. Until that's there, there is no freedom. There is no power, and we will succumb to every desire, every temptation. Praise God that he has not left us alone. Jesus makes this so clear for us in John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and here's the important part, and bring to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. When Jesus sends the Spirit of God, he brings to remembrance everything that Jesus has said. This isn't, oh, this might happen. This is for all believers who trust in Christ, who've submitted their will to him. If you submit your heart and say, I wanna follow you, Lord, the promise is that his word will be there for you. The spirit will remind you. That's what this fruit is. It floods your soul. And thankfully, it's over a lifetime. And it comes in different seasons and different moments and different expressions. But it's there. And it's a promise. And it always, every good tree bears good fruit. This isn't just something that happens to only those special people. It's to you, Christian no matter how small your faith is, even as Jesus says, as small as a mustard seed, still that person can say, move mountains. So the spirit of God has done this. I love what Martin Luther describes about how blessed we are to have this fruit of the spirit. The faithful then, while they live on earth, crucify the sinful nature. They feel its desires, but do not obey them. They have God's armor, faith, hope, and the sword of the spirit and resist the sinful nature, fastening it to the cross with these spiritual nails so that it is subjected to the spirit. Afterwards, when they die, they get rid of it completely. And when they rise again from death to life, they will have a pure and uncorrupt nature without such feelings and desires. Uh, Anyone, anyone excited for that day when there's not a single corrupt desire and nature? it's gone see i i just think all of us have not even a clue as to what that day in glory will be like it's going to be amazing i was um every few times a year i tend to have these dreams and they tend to be spiritual dreams and sua my wife she'll always tell me did you have she'll ask me did you have a spiritual dream and I would say, well, why do you ask? And she said, because you're making that noise again. And I'd say, what noise? And she'd go, mmm. I started like humming, like a, you know, just this. I realized that, um, it's, it's, in fact, I, <laughs> my dentist said, you need a night guard because you're clenching your teeth all the time, probably while you're sleeping. And I have this. I do. And I, I would say, yes, I did. I was being attacked by demons, or I, I do get those dreams. And last night I had this dream. And the dream was um, there's going to be no one at church. You know, it's, it's just, there's, you know what, you spend all this time, all this effort, and uh, it's the same number. The same few who come are still there. And it, it's so tempting to let such thoughts just permeate through our soul. And so much of this world is that life. I mean, I don't know if any of you, we've talked about this many times, thinking, are we going to be in this pandemic for the rest of our lives? You know, are we going to be, forget about wearing masks, are we going to just be going in and out, in and out? Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. Or what about all the tensions? in life, in relationship, in marriage, in friendship, in work. All of that is in our souls. It's just clouding us. And we're carrying that every day for the rest of our lives. What this passage is telling us, when Jesus crucified our sins so that one day we will, he has overcome it now so that we can experience victory today, but we will also struggle today still, even though there's victory, there's failure, there's victory, there's failure, but one day eternally, as Martin Luther says, when we rise again from death to life, they will have a pure and uncorrupt nature without such feelings and desires, all gone, forever. Oh, how we will rejoice. So what we do here is but a foretaste of waiting. So even for those of you who are physically gathered here, it's but a foretaste of eternity. And for those of you who are watching still, that's literally like a foretaste of what's in this room. That's still not enough. I think of it as someone who watching on video, it's literally going to someone's clothing in the closet and smelling it and saying, oh, they're here. I love this person. You're hugging a big jean or something. I love this jacket so much because I love this person in it. My friends who are watching, that's you. You're loving the jeans. You're smelling, oh, that's so good. That's not enough. But even here, we're still hugging the jeans. Do you know what I mean? We're still doing that because there is going to be something so much more. We're living for more. May you never forget that. May me remember that God is a merciful God. Thank you, Lord, for this fruit. You are not alone. The gentle Christ who is gentle in power is compassionate towards you even when you sin. The God Christ who said no to every temptation did that so that he can help you when you're tempted so that you can say no as well. What a merciful God we worship. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Oh Lord, we give thanks for this wondrous cross, for the power and glory of your son, oh Father. Thank you for crucifying our sins on that cross. Every single one of them is nailed to that piece of wood and because of your kindness and steadfast love, you still welcome us. I pray for those who are here. Thank you for bringing them. It has been so long. I pray that no one would walk away from here without experiencing the presence of your spirit. For those who are watching, If it's out of fear, I pray father that you would give them your peace. If it's out of convenience, I pray, O Lord, that you would help them to see that you be, you went the inconvenient route of becoming flesh dwelling amongst us, despite the challenges and difficulties and risk the response, the right response is the willingness to even do that, which is inconvenient for the sake of Christ. For those who perhaps have gotten into the habit of not meeting together. It's so easy for all of us. No one is immune from that, but we thank you. O Lord, that you are faithful. You are good. And I pray that there would be broken habits today that next week we would see a lot of broken habits of not meeting together. And that new habit formed of meeting together would come back and a new delight in Christ. Father, we just really pray that that would be the case. And so as we look to this bread and wine as a reminder of your faithfulness to us, may we respond with joy, with delight. And we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen.